Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are going to talk about a paper he just delivered recently in Denver, and it is about a book called Voices Long Silence. So Scott, I'm eager to hear about the setting for this paper, who you were presenting to, and um, just the nature of that academic conversation. Well, I got this uh, invitation, I don't know, probably last spring. They, these things usually work about nine months in advance. And, and it was to participate in an SBL session in Denver. Uh, it would be an entire... It would be an entire session, two and a half hours, on a book called Voices Long Silenced, Women Biblical Interpreters Through the, Through the Centuries. Well, I had, I had received the book already, and I was keen on reading it. So I thought, okay, I'll participate. And I was asked to be a panelist, which was a great honor to get to respond to this. The book is by two women, Joy Schrader, who is a Lutheran, seminary professor in uh, our professor in Ohio and the other one is by Marion is Marion Ann Taylor and she is um, a professor at Wycliffe in Toronto and both of them have an absolute passion to find and to revoice I guess that's the word we use today mm-hmm. is to give the voice to women, who were biblical interpreters, but whose names we no longer know. Yeah. So, um, and Marion uh, described how this happened. She was, This book begins in, in a class with Marion when a, when a woman student comes up to her and says, uh, and Marion's an Old Testament scholar. I think Joy is a professor of church history or history. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not absolutely certain. Oh, she's Old Testament. So um, Marion, and Marion teaches Old Testament too. So Marion is teaching this class and a woman comes up and she says something like this. I, I want to read some women biblical interpreters in history. Yeah. And Marion says, I don't know that many. Wow. Now there are some, of course, mm-hmm. which this was long ago. So Marion, she told this story. It was really kind of amazing. Because of digitization, she could go through these massive library uh, card systems in Britain, and she would have to type in Mrs. and then the word Bible, because wow. a lot of the women would not use their first names. Wow. Because they were so. Then she started finding names, and the one name led to another name, and she has she has recovered. Just all kinds of it. Now, here's an interesting thing. It really stuck to me. She said, there are all kinds of women who deserve to have a PhD written on them, on their yeah. biblical interpretation methods and what they did. Hmm. Well, all of a sudden I thought, you know, if you teach at a school that cares about church history and interpretation. So 
All right, so I'm asked to give a paper. This is no kidding. I went through a process of two different, um, and it wasn't cheeky at all for me, but it was symbolic. I thought one thing I could do is stand there and just read the names of these women. Yeah. Okay. Now, there are some 400 <laughs> women mentioned in this book. Oh, that's amazing. It is amazing. And in fact, this book is like an encyclopedia. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not a breezy story. It's, it's you know, when they have um, two or three pages on a woman, that's mm -hmm. really an expansive section. It, most of them are a couple paragraphs. Hmm. And they've done their work on, on each of these women. The other thing I thought of doing was just not talking for 10 minutes, just to experience the silence, hmm. silencing my male voice in a room mostly of women mm -hmm. uh, who wanted to hear about women thinking that. And then I thought this would embody the silence that these women have experienced. So um, I, do, I chose to, to talk about about the book at any rate, but it was um, it was a really good experience. Chris was mm. there, and she really enjoyed it. The, the papers were really good. The first the first presentation, uh, and I've known most of these women's names, but I had not I had not met them. Mm. So the first one was by Jamie Clark Souls, who teaches at Perkins School of Theology, and she is a dynamic speaker. She's really good. And uh, I had seen her name, but I hadn't read uh, anything by her. And then there was Mitzi Smith, who is sort of a legend mm -hmm. in woman, womanist in uh, African-American women interpreters. I read something recently where her name came up quite a few times. Um, so that was the second. Then I spoke. And then I was sort of the, um, I was the only man on the panel, which <laughs> didn't need to have any. But uh, I was honored, and I think part of it was they wanted to have uh, an evangelical mm. uh, representation, even if I don't yeah. represent evangelicals that well. And then it was Yunju Kim, and she's at Isla School of Theology, which is um, another well-known mainline seminary. Mm -hmm. And then when that was done, Marion, Ann Taylor, and Joy both responded. Uh, oh, amazing. The, so it was a really good session, and lots of stimulating things came up. And when I first started, I said, I've been coming to SBL for almost 40 years, and the first two papers were two of the most interesting papers I've heard the whole time. So <laughs> I put I put them both both of those papers in the top 10 that I've heard. Oh, that's, and I've that's probably fantastic. Heard 200. So, so well, that it's, was, it's just yeah. it's just interesting. I was just thinking, um, Last year, I took a class, an intensive, on uh, women in the early church uh, with Dr. Lynn Kohick. Yes. And one of the things that I thought about during that class, this is the second time I'm doing seminary. I did seminary in the early 2000s at a different seminary. Um, Whose and I took a shall go mentioned. Yes. And I took a church history class there. And then I, I was taking this class, um, Women in the Early Church, which was under the category of church history. And I thought it was just remarkable how different those courses were. I actually went back and dug out my textbooks from the early 2000s, trying to 
see if there were any women represented in those textbooks at all. And I think there may have been one or two, but I mean, this is, I had three different textbooks for that class and I had to dig to find anything, any content mentioning a female leader, um, and then took an entire intensive on women in the early church. And it was just fascinating. I think everyone in that class had this sense of there have been women active in the church, active interpreting scripture um, from the very beginning of the life of the church. And, and there's this sense of how have we missed these voices? Um, where have they been hiding? And so I, I love this idea of kind of going back, digging deep into archives and into libraries to try to recover these voices because it's not like they didn't exist. We just haven't repeated their voices over the years so that we know about them. I I read not too long ago, a couple of years ago, Robert Shaw Romero's book on the Brown Church. Yes. One of the things that came up in that book that really I thought, this is so important to know is that in the 16th century, Mexican-Americans, and you can't even call them that at that time, right? Yeah. Were already doing liberation theology. Yes. Very much along the lines of Gustavo Gutierrez, of course, without the specific category of socialism and a more, you know, the economic system of responding to Mm. capitalism. But it was so obvious that that's what they were doing. In the yeah. 16th century, following hard upon the Reformation itself. Yeah. Uh, it's not like Reformation era doesn't know what liberation theology is. Well, here, as you read this book, you realize these women, um, and I didn't feel like I discovered this, but in, in my book, The Blue Parakeet, I always appeal to something I call, what did women do? Yes. You know, So go through the women of the Bible and say, what did they do? And do you allow women to do that in your churches? Then you're being biblical, okay? Yeah. So, um, I, um, as I as I was reading this book, I thought this argument has been has been used since the early church. Yeah. That they've been appealing to what women did in the pages of the Bible. So yeah. sometimes we get to thinking, you know, like it was the feminists of the 1960s who gave yeah. the idea that women can be do. No, that is not at all the case. This has been uh, percolating and simmering and mm. sometimes bubbling over throughout the history of the church. And the language I use for this comes from a statement by by Toni Morrison in a, in a book she uh, is it's a collection of her stuff called The Source of Self-Regard, she said the most effective and reliable saboteur is she who needs no orders. She who needs no orders. And what I found is the number of these women in the history of the church who needed no orders, there were orders there. Yes. You're not supposed to do this. They didn't need anyone to tell them that they weren't going to be able to speak or preach Mm. or write. They did it because they felt compelled by God, by a message. And that's the women who have rocked the boat, who have uh, stirred the waters, and who have, uh, you know, shaken the foundations in buildings and led to change over time. Now, it's, Mm, you know, it's so good. We're going to ever get to perfection on this, but there's definitely the changes in my lifetime 
of the number of women in biblical studies and even in ministry in the church yeah. is dramatically different. So, yeah. but these were great. These were really fun papers to listen to. And um, I'm going to ask the other three if they would send me their paper and I will try to post it on my uh, Substack mm. and see if I get permission. But if they do, I'll, yeah. I'll post it. So, so we That'd can be get so more. Good. Uh, I think every, one of the things, you know, Laura, you've heard me say is that we need to tell more stories about women. Well, yeah. we need to get stories about women. And this is a mm. book that gives us stories about women. Yeah. So, so this is so thing. good. That's so good. I, I that um, Tony Morrison quote, I heard a female pastor one time exhorting other women to fully live into their gifts. And one of the comments that she made is that it's God who ordains. It's God who issues mm -hmm. the call. And mm -hmm. she said, there may be, you you may not get the title. You may not get the ordination, but that doesn't mean God hasn't called you and yeah. ordained you. And um, I, I like that imagery of you just got to get on with it. I think there is sort of, I, I don't know. This is this is my wondering, but many of the women that I've met in seminary have been older. We're we're a little more seasoned. We've been in ministry. Uh, we're not in our twenties. Is my shorthand yeah. there? Um, but just this idea: you get to a certain place in life where you say, "I'm just going to follow God's lead." I think Tara Beth Leach talks about this. You kind of get to this breaking point where you realize God issues the call, then you just get out there and follow after it, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. And you may bump into some opposition, but at the end of the day, your call is to be obedient to God, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. not other people. And and so I like that, that image of not needing orders because if you're waiting for that, it's probably never going to come. Nobody's going to hand select you and say, you should do this. It's yeah. probably not going to happen. But if you feel God, God's compulsion, then that's your call. And you know, um, this this little expression from Toni Morrison, she who needs no orders, it's not like these women in the history of the church, number one, didn't know that there were orders there. And right. number two, didn't play the game so well that they could use the game's rules to sabotage or to subvert subvert the orders. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll, I'll read a little bit of a section about Marjorie Kemp and you'll see this. It's, it's sometimes called code switching where they, they say, okay, now I'm in a man's world. I'm going to have to play according to these rules, but they played according to these rules in ways that subverted those rules in, in yes. special ways. But yes. um, uh, Marjorie Kemp is a woman who needed no orders. She happens to be Beth Barr's bestie. So it's a big it's a big part of her academic work. Schrader and Taylor conclude that Kempe or Kemp, I keep saying this Kempe at times, strategically overstated her illiteracy and lack of education to deflect criticism from religious and civil authorities who were suspicious of lay people's biblical learning. Kemp stated that she had to employ scribes to put her book of Marjorie Kemp into coherent argument. But Lynn Staley, who's an expert on Kemp, concluded, now here's a quotation, Kemp may even have penned the book herself, inventing a scribe whose preface attested to Kemp's sanctity. 
<laughs> Why did she do this? Because dictating to a clergyman was less controversial than writing the text herself. It's a really good example of dissident code switching by a woman who took orders because she needed none. That's that's my favorite. <laughs> the authors of the book celebrated to you know in this in this session continue with Kemp's story. She was interrogated, I love this one, by the Archbishop of York, who demanded that she not teach, to which she replied by appealing to the woman who in Luke 11 said, blessed is the womb that bore thee and the breast that gave thee suck. Jesus replied to her that the blessed are those who hear and do the word of God. So Marjorie Kemp said to the archbishop, I think the gospel permits me to speak of God. <laughs> <laughs> which incited the clerics against her for speaking of the gospel. A priest then opined that Paul banned women from teaching. And now this is this is beautiful, a uh, code switching, to whom Kemp responded with some eloquent words. She's with more than a touch of dissident needing no orders when she said, I don't preach, sir. I enter no pulpit. I only use I only I use only discussion and good words and I'll do so as long as I live. So they <laughs> they sort of exonerated her. But this, this is the game that yeah. these women had to play. I believe that your generation of women, let's say church leaders, uh, no longer wants to play the code switching game. Right. They think it's time for you to be able to stand on your own feet, dress the way you dress, talk the way you talk, and and to get the respect that you deserve on the basis of your giftedness. That's what I I see has happened. But that possibility, which has increased in my lifetime, is only possible because of the code-switching subversion of these uh, women in the history of the church. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it's it reminds me of um, churches that in the 1980s, you know, might host a female missionary on Sunday night to share her testimony or a story. Um, even though, you know, wherever she was serving, she was building churches and training pastors and discipling entire communities. Um, but that, that contrast, I remember I was part of a church for a season in college where they had a group of um, single female missionaries that all retired around the same time and came home to their sending church in retirement. And it forced the issue for this church of here we have these women who have been gifted leaders around the world, influencing communities for the gospel. And here at home, they can't teach adult Sunday school. Uh. We're doing something wrong, you know? And it, it was beautiful because they... They wanted to allow these women to use their gifts. And so it really forced that church into just a soul searching moment of who, who are we? Um, does this represent who we want to be and led to a change? When I was young, really young, there were two women who were supported by our church, Grace and Catherine Jepson. Okay. And they were old women at this time. Mm -hmm. And they were unmarried women, and Grace Jepson was sort of one of my parents' favorites. And they, whenever they were home on furlough, yes. they would come to our church. 
And Grace would always come to our house and she would be in the room. And my mom loved to have her for dinner, you know, for Sunday lunch, roast, potatoes, carrots, you know, everything, <laughs> the old, the old style. And, um, I remember my father who, and my mother and father were not progressives in any way, nor I don't think I ever heard my dad say anything about he thought women should be pastors. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably went along with me as I got older. Uh, and he, he always read what I was writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember my dad saying many times that Grace Jepson knows the Bible better than pastors and she can teach the Bible better than pastors. Mm. And uh, so, she, you know, he, he always valorized <laughs> her skills and giftedness. And I remember learning, and it was almost like it was later. Maybe I learned this when I was in my 30s, that my father and mother said this to me. Those women were never allowed to preach on Sunday morning, but they right. could give a testimony. So that yeah. one of them, you know, would give a testimony in the morning and another one in the in the evening, and they would talk for fifteen or twenty minutes. But everybody in the church knew that that was a really good exposition of scripture. And then yes. Grace, uh, and I, I don't remember Catherine so much. Grace would always then uh, have some sessions during the week for women to come and listen to her talk, and she would she mm -hmm. would explain the scriptures to these women, and they yeah. just loved having a woman do this. But this was in a church that never even remotely considered a woman as a pastor. Still, happens. right? It's right. It's barely existing today. But um, so that that has been a part, uh, and it's really a part of this book. The, the reason why this book has to be written is to resurrect these voices, to to mm. revoice these women, is because in the history of the church, these women have been silenced. But Laura, yeah. you would be amazed at the women in this book who had a big impact. I mean, mm. like there's this woman named Argula von Grumbach, and she writes uh, a pamphlet against the university, Ingolstadt, in Germany, right after the Lutheran breakthrough, because some student uh, who gave credible Lutheran confession in a Catholic community at a Catholic university. And they, you know, they were going to get, they kicked him out of the school. So she writes a pamphlet that goes into 16 different printings. Wow. Against the university professors <laughs> sold more than 29,000 copies, which <laughs> is huge. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people's books who haven't sold more than five or 2000 copies. And the university though, never responded to her. Hmm. And uh, so this is, uh, these are the kinds of women who've been writing these things. And she, of course, trotted out Deborah and Hulda and Junia, well, they probably not Junia, uh, and uh, uh, Priscilla and Phoebe and all these women and showed that these women were doing things. Why can't we do things? Mm. So <laughs> the, the, the pen has been as powerful as the voice in the history yes. of women. There was a woman, and I don't even remember her name now. I She wrote a standard textbook for seminary students on Hebrew grammar. Hmm. Now that one, you know, I thought, wow, I didn't even know. A lot of these books, I these women, most of them I'd never heard of. I learned that the 
almost the the most common book that women commented on in writing commentaries or wrote about was the book of Psalms. Mm. And Joy Schrader made some really interesting comments about this. They don't know exactly, you know, there's no reason why, well, the women chose the book of Psalms. But she said, I suspect it has to do with the experiential nature of that literature and lamenting, you know, and I would say complaining of mm-hmm. and they and so they experienced that, but there was a lot of a lot of comments on mm-hmm. on on the Psalms. I was also surprised at the number of women who wrote extensive commentaries. Some a whole commentary, a commentary on the whole Bible. Yeah, um, lots. Listen to this: Marion Ann Taylor found. I think she said, I want to say twenty five commentaries on the book of revelation in the late 19th century wow that's (laughs) fascinating it is and so and this this is stuff that you that we don't know about partly because we don't know a lot about 19th century commentators so let's admit that but these these women's voices have been silenced Hmm. by the history of scholarship because it is focused on the male scholars rather right. than the women scholars. Right. So, And one of the things that's so interesting, I think we've talked about this before, but I think when you hear scripture interpreted by people who live in very different um, embodied experiences, your understanding of scripture is broadened. And yeah, um, yeah it's just, it's fascinating to hear from those different positions. Um yeah, and to learn from them. So one other thing I, I read at the end of your paper, you talk about Henrietta Mears, who is a personal hero of mine. So is she really? I love Yeah, she really is. I grew up Presbyterian. I know who Henrietta Henrietta Mears is. I would love for you to tell our listeners, because this is a voice that Certain people, I'll meet people from time to time who know who she is and they get really excited about her. But there's a lot of people who've never heard of Henrietta Mears. So tell us who she is and why she is important. Okay. You know, there's a biography of her. Have you read it? Oh, really? No. Yes. Um, I refer to it in one of my books, you know. I'm sorry to tell you, I don't remember which book it was. I think it's in A Fellowship of Difference. Hmm. Um, But Henrietta Mears... It could be in the in the gospel book, uh, King Jesus Gospel, because this is where I okay. got interested in her. Okay. Henrietta Mears was a Sunday school teacher. She's from Minneapolis or, or Minnesota. She was a Sunday school teacher at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Hollywood. Okay. Right. And it is it was, at the time, one of the most significant Presbyterian churches in the United States, certainly on the West Coast. Yeah. And her her Sunday school classes were absolutely packed with people. Yes. And people came from all over the place just to hear Henrietta Mears teach Sunday school. Yeah. And, and so younger people. Started, huh? Younger people, if I recall correctly. It was like people in their 20s. Yes. And like, university yeah. students and stuff. Right. Uh, she and, and she would have these evening sessions and people would flock to hear her teach. And she began to distribute her Sunday school materials throughout the United States. So famous was she that whenever Billy Graham in the, and when she was still alive 
was in LA. He always visited with Henrietta Mears. Mm. And also, so did Bill Bright. Well, here's what happened is she wrote her Sunday school materials eventually went through, I think, every book in the new in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So she produced nothing less than like a commentary on the Bible called What the Bible is All About. Yes. And so influential and clear were, were her teachings that Billy Graham distributed this book to every person who made a decision in his crusades. And I believe this number is correct, that it has sold more than 6 million copies. Yeah. Now think about this. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I looked at the panelists and I said, all our books combined, folks, don't even come close to 6 million, <laughs> 6 million <laughs> copies. We're probably right around 200,000 total. <laughs> uh, and, and this is, uh, this was a, this is a book that, I mean, think about this. This is before Hal Lindsey sold, I think 12 million copies. Yeah. And that was when books could be produced like this. But prior to this is huge. And she taught more people the Bible than mm-hmm. anybody in the 20th century. Anybody yeah. in the United yeah. States. Okay. And I'm sure, sure it's been translated. Well, when I was uh, studying the gospel and really curious about the origin of the four spiritual laws, I saw a copy of Henrietta Mears' book. And mm-hmm. at the back of it, it has sort of like a presentation of the gospel and the four spiritual laws. So I thought, well, maybe she is the one who's responsible <laughs> for the four spiritual laws. <laughs> so I started reading and I, I read about Bill Bright. There's a good book about Bill Bright. And I read about Billy Graham. And then a librarian at North Park University, where I was teaching at the time, got really curious about this topic. And we began to investigate, and we got all the original copies of her book. And it wasn't in the original one. So mm-hmm. she picked it up from Billy Graham and Bill Bright. Wow. And then passed it on. But uh, I thought that could even be another story is just yeah. about Henrietta Mears. But that book deserves – I don't have a copy of it anymore. I think I gave it to someone who never gave it back. That book deserves to be on the shelf of 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 pastors, mm-hmm. um, I have met anybody who's my age or older, especially a woman in a more conservative evangelical world, will know about Henrietta Mears. Yeah. When I was in college, an older woman was teaching Sunday school class at this fundamentalist Baptist church that we went to, and every week she basically saw herself as a version of Henrietta Mears. And my <laughs> my pastor, you know, this is really. <laughs> the best thing. He was just hoping that she would quit teaching. So he didn't have to, he says, if I tried to remove her, he didn't believe that women should be teaching. He said, if I tried to remove her, the church would fall apart because they loved (laughs) her class. People would come to her class and then leave. And Mm. she did too. She didn't stay for church. She came for Sunday school to teach and it went (laughs) home. So that's hilarious. Well, and what I find fascinating about her stories is how many young leaders she influenced. So you've mentioned Bill Bright, Billy Graham. There's a handful of other really influential evangelistic Bible teachers that studied under Henrietta Mears. And that I think is just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our day, this is Beth Moore. She's teaching yes. more people the Bible than anybody in the United States. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yes. her books sell a lot more copies than N.T. Wright's books. 
that, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. And she's a Bible teacher, you know? Yes. And, and uh, so this, they're just, they're riding the wave of these voices that have been long silenced. Yes. And, uh, and this book by uh, Joyce Schrader and Marion Ann Taylor um, is a record of these voices. And they said they had to choose and, People, there are a lot of people who didn't get included, and a lot of people who didn't get included are the ones that we do know about. Yeah. And I thought, well, I feel better now because there's so many <laughs> names I didn't know about, and that overlaps some with Lisa Bowen's book on African American readings of Paul yes. Zilpha yeah. Elau is in this book, but a lot of those stories. So there's there's a revival. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a, an ongoing interest of. Yeah trying to find these women and resurrect their voices for a new yeah. day. So, yeah, that's so good. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. It's yeah. so fun. And I, I think for our listeners um, to consider if they are unfamiliar with some of these people that we've mentioned, and if they'd like to learn uh, voices, long silence would be a great place to start learning about uh, female biblical interpreters over the centuries, really, um, and and resurrect those voices. Let's repeat them and help people learn from them. Um, yeah, because I do think it helps grow our understanding of scripture and grow our understanding of God. It's good stuff. Yes. Well, thank you. And uh, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much, everybody. 